and welcome to Knowing Nature, a podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name is Annabeth. And I'm Victor. And welcome to this episode. I'm pretty stoked to get started on this one because it's combining two of my favourite things, the natural world and reading. Because this episode's all about some of our favourite natural history books or books related to animals or the environment. And I think when we're trapped in lockdown, reading is kind of the only escape we have at the minute. Yeah. Yeah. A good, you know, even if we don't, we aren't really able to get outside as much as we'd like to, we can still read about it. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And I think for me anyway, my childhood was definitely, I can list the books that kind of changed my life and changed my way of thinking and probably signposted me onto becoming, you know, studying zoology and working in natural history and science communication things. So I think books are just one of the most important tools in your arsenal as maybe a parent or an educator in getting kids and young people and really anyone inspired and engaged with the natural world, which is what we're all about. Absolutely. And also there nowadays ebooks exist, so you don't need to get out to a library or a bookstore to get these books. Um, most of them are available as ebooks, which is great. Mm. The first book that I have is um, it's kind of a classic of environmental education books is uh, called Last Child in the Woods, which Ooh, is by Richard Louvre. Yeah, it's a really good one. Yeah. So it was published in 2005, and it's notable for being the book that coined the term nature deficit disorder. Really? Yeah, That's so this cool, is the, the idea that not having access to nature actually can harm you. Like it has too. impacts yeah. on you and on yeah. development. I can totally like believe that as well, because I know probably speaking for myself and probably speaking for a lot of people in the current lockdown situation, when you are kind of trapped indoors, and if you're a bit like me and you live maybe in the city centre and there's not really many parks nearby to get to, you do feel a sort of kind of way down, like kind of pressure on your shoulders almost with not having access to the natural world, to the environment, trees, to wild animals and things like that. Like the excitement I saw at seeing a bat last night outside my window was amazing just to see the idea that you know the wilderness still exists even when you're in a city so yeah I can totally yeah nature deficit disorder I feel it I'm feeling it yeah there's that aspect of urban spaces being slightly stressful for a whole range of things just like the amount of noise and things that you need to pay attention to like Mm. even just walking down the street you know you have to pay attention to the traffic There's a lot of things to look out for to make sure that you're going to stay safe. And that's kind of a stressor. But whereas if you're walking in a more natural environment, you can kind of focus on different things. Tends to be a less stressful environment for a lot of people. Big Mm -hmm. argument that he was making in the book also is that when kids don't have access to natural spaces, it can actually harm their development in terms of their their attention and their ability to focus on things. Because the modern digital world kind of feeds lots of these little bitty inputs into you, whereas the natural world, it's there is still a, a broad range of stimuli, but it it's actually an even broader range. Yeah, and it may be because it engages all your senses. So when you're out in nature, you can focus a lot better uh, because there's so much more. Like you don't get bored in the same way that. If you're watching mm-hmm. TV, 
even if it's a really exciting like action-packed tv show it it gets really tiring on you like tiring on your eyes and just the there's just so much input and plot that you have to pay attention to my attention span is definitely like not what it used to be so it's, yeah exactly being kind of trapped indoors and watching more tv and things like that like i definitely yeah you're totally right yeah. whereas when you're kind of outside you could be sitting for the same amount of time as you would be in front of the tv but there's just so much so much more going on that you don't realize like the sound of wind in the trees and birds and various other things like that like it totally it's just a totally different scenario like the actual change in environment on you like it's totally it's it's crazy to think about but yeah it's so true yeah that it, it kind of you don't get tired of that natural stimulus in the same way that you get tired you know sitting in front of the tv watching loads of stuff you don't get bored in the same way there are um different ways of looking at this book but i I wanted to bring it up just because it is this like really important book in environmental education. It's kind of the basis of a lot of ideas, even if um, and it is based in in research. But I think nowadays we would kind of moderate things a bit. I think there's a lot more acceptance of using modern technologies in order to explore the outdoors and the natural environment. I think probably when he was writing it there was this uh, there's a much stronger reaction to computers and digital technology and all of that that he was kind of rejecting in this book in in a way uh, and arguing that no you know being outside in nature is is helpful in a lot of ways and might be really important for development i think nowadays we would moderate the message now but it, mm-hmm. it's still a good book to to read and to think about yeah, definitely. I think as well, the idea that how important nature is to us and how important nature has been to like so many generations as well, like so many philosophers and scientists and poets and writers and everything gets so much inspiration for their work from the natural world around them. So I think I, I love the sign of that book. It's definitely going on my reading list, I think. What's uh, your first book? Oh, well, my first book, it came out in 2017 um, and it's called The Unexpected Truth About Animals. And I have to say, I've never had a book that sort of shocked me and made me laugh. And it's just unbelievable. It's written by um, Lucy Cook. So she works in broadcasting and filmmaking, but she has a master's in zoology, where she was actually tutored by Richard Dawkins, which is really, really cool. Um, but she kind of began her career working sort of behind the scenes in television. But as now, she's you see her nearly all the time now on like Natural History TV, um, like National Geographic and stuff. Um, her previous book was a really, really fantastic book. That was a picture book all about sloths. But uh, this one, The Unexpected Truth About Animals, it kind of does what it says on the cover. It just kind of reveals some sort of things about animals that you might not have any idea about. Now, I've studied zoology. I'm not saying I knew I know everything, but I thought I had a general kind of well understanding about the animals that are on planet Earth. But this one kind of just rips the lid off it, especially because of how humans have interpreted animals throughout the years. History is full of really strange, bizarre, crazy animal stories. Like but even ones like, for instance, Aristotle, who was one of the you know great, great thinkers, he had some whacked ideas about animals from way back. So she kind of delves into some of these mysteries and myths to see how much truth is in them. Uh, for instance, we used to think that eels were born from the sand, that swallows migrated all the way to the moon and back. Yeah. And that even bear cubs, um, when bears were born, they were formless lumps and then they were licked into shape by their mother so she kind of yeah it's unbelievable she kind of unravels all these myths and 
then actually you think, oh, it's not that exciting. Well, actually, the facts then she does sort of reveal are even probably more fascinating. Like, it's just really, really unbelievable. Like, the, the, they used to believe that hippos, like, it's blood coming out, but it's not. It's through their sweat. So I really, really, like, recommend it just as a kind of, it's just such an eye-opener. And it's definitely one of those books that kind of gives you this, yeah, like, arsenal of facts that you can kind of whip out at dinner parties and conversations and things to really kind of amaze. I think it yeah. just goes to show that we still, there's so much still we have to learn about sort of animals and that we don't know as much as we thought we did I think and she writes so brilliantly she writes she has that sort of geological knowledge but also she's a really really kind of funny charismatic writer and really draws you in so it's definitely been I've probably read it about four or five times to be honest so it's right at the top of my reading list and of like recommendations I like to put across but yeah like the book itself it, it kind of covers loads of different animals so you'll find something on hippos and sloths and bats and frogs and it's just it's just one of those ones that totally changes your way of thinking and your way of looking at the natural world. It's just so much more. You think of all the myths and legends. Well, the natural world is even more amazing. And the stories that it has to tell are even more fantastical than you could possibly imagine. Yeah. It's fantastic. Makes you wonder how much of what we think we currently know about animals is going to turn out to be myths and legends in the future. Exactly. Like the things that we think are true because we just we don't know enough about them. Like my times you hear about, oh, we, this is a species like, for instance, I think a great example is animals that inhabit the deep sea and the deep mm -hmm. sea oceans. We know less about our deep sea than we know about the surface of the moon, which is mental considering how many there's so few people living to the moon. But we know so little about it. Like how many things do we have we hypothesized about the animals and the creatures that inhabit those depths? That are going to be completely false or we're going to find out something that we never thought even remotely possible yeah yeah so it's a good one put it on your list if you want to just just have a total brain explosion <laughs> anyway i can explain it blow your mind my second book is called a fish caught in time and this one's oh. a, a much more focused book it's by samantha weinberg uh, first published in 2000. And it's about the coelacanth. Oh, I love this book. This is one of my, this would have been one of mine if you hadn't picked it, I think. Yeah. I, this, this is this is a book that sort of, uh, it's a book that tells the story of how a woman changes everything. But I'm going to let you talk about it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, so it's, it's about um, the rediscovery of the coelacanth. And the coelacanth is this quite large fish. It lives in fairly deep waters. But it's famous for it was thought to have gone extinct millions of millions of years ago. So we knew that fish like this existed because we had fossils of it. It's this strange looking fish and it's its fins are on those these like little stumps that stick out of the body a little bit. It's this very strange, unusual fish. And the they unusual, used to think yeah. yeah, they used to think that, oh, this this is a link between, you know, fish and reptiles, because here's a fish and it's got almost like the start of these little legs. So it is well known in paleontologists. And then in the 1930s, this woman named Marjorie Latimer is down at the fish market and sees one of these really strange, unusual fish that she'd not seen before, but thought might be important. And then turns out it's the coelacanth. And so the book starts out with the ridiculous story of her finding because of course all of this happens uh, around the christmas holidays and it's the <laughs> 1930s so traveling around is like much more difficult but then it becomes this kind of like natural history detective story because there was that was one specimen that was found and then it's the hunt for you know are there more of them where do mm -hmm. they are live? they still around yeah. yeah are they still around what 
what are they even like? Because we don't know very much about them uh, at that point. I think it's just incredible, like that sort of discovery. Like in the 1930s, there was like people knew about dinosaurs. You know, they probably thought they were pretty. They kind of discovered everything that kind of needed to be discovered. And then wham, here comes a coelacanth. It's like the same, the equivalent of finding a T-Rex walking about Arizona today. It's that sort of mental scale of discoveries. I would argue to say it's probably the greatest scientific discovery of the past hundred years. There, I said it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it's, and it's, it's not like it's, oh, it's just some tiny fish. Like it looks really strange and it's really big. It's like over a meter. And they're really pretty. If you watch any videos of them on YouTube, they actually have really kind of beautiful, beautiful dark blue skin you wouldn't expect because the only coelacanths i've ever seen are the um kind of preserved specimens in the tank room at the natural History museum in london and they're obviously because they're in alcohol it kind of they look all kind of brown and gross and things but they actually have really really beautiful yeah blue scales which you would never expect and i just think i think that the, the book on it is just unbelievable like you said it's like a detective sort of tale mixed with natural history and science like bam 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 giving you like all that you want from a book pretty much you kind of yeah, like on the edge yeah. you with it it's fantastic and so not not a super long book it's like it's fairly short but it's a really good read so if you're into detective uh like mystery books with a little bit of adventure thrown in like this is a really good one that also has mm-hmm. this science natural history twist to it definitely recommend that one fish cotton time so keeping with the sort of marine aquatic theme we've kind of got since with the last book, my book that I want to chat about now is um, called Other Minds, The Octopus, the Sea and the Deep Origins of Consciousness by Peter Godfrey Smith. Um, this book is kind of like a mix between sort of a philosophy and a science and sort of like a retelling of the author's own tales. And as you can get from it, it's all about kind of the octopus and cephalopods. Now, Peter Godfrey Smith, he's A science philosopher, which I think is probably the most awesome title I've ever heard for jobs. But it means that that kind of language that he talks through in the book kind of really draws you in. It's really empathetic and really gets you thinking as well. Yeah, basically, it's all the idea of kind of looking into cephalopods and more particularly looking into octopus and seeing what their sort of evolution makes you think about the evolution of yourself as well. Just because when we think of sort of intelligence and intelligent animals, you think of humans and then you kind of think of mammals. You think of dogs, of um, cetaceans, like dolphins and whales and things like that, even pigs. You tend to not think about invertebrates, but actually cephalopods and in particular octopus are actually really, really smart. They seem to have, scientists seem to say that they have similar levels of intelligence to that of a dog or even a three-year-old child which is pretty remarkable considering they don't have a back, they are invertebrates. Um, But basically the book goes to show, goes through kind of their evolution and how they're kind of the closest thing we have to almost like an alien on earth. Like they evolved compound eyes like we have and they evolved like an intense, like a nervous system like we have and things like that, but not, they're not a close relative to us at all. They have to go really, really far back on the evolutionary tree to see our kind of closest living ancestor. And it's a really, it's just a really, really fascinating insight into something that seems so yeah, alien and so far removed from humanity, but yet has that sort of sentience and that sort of consciousness and that sort of intelligence that, yeah, we don't associate with anything other than us. Um, I just think it's a really, it's just such an interesting insight into things. Um, it includes his own stories because he's actually a really proficient scuba diver and he's encountered lots and lots of octopus and cephalopods 
in his time. And I think that's kind of what inspired him to kind of do a bit more research into the species, into the animals. Um, but it also includes some really, really kind of funny stories of how, because obviously octopus have been studied quite a bit, um, kind of their shows of their intelligence. Um, like if you know about octopus, you know that they, in like sort of lab experiments, they get quite good results. They can negotiate mazes and unscrew, unscrew jars um, and they can actually use visual cues and they can actually like register their environment. Like, for instance, there was a study done on an octopus at the University of Tego in New Zealand. And the octopus learned to turn off the lights around it by squirting water at the bulbs because brightness kind of annoyed this octopus. And there was another story of how um, there was an octopus who really didn't like this one scientist who would squirt water at him every time when he walked past. And I think there was this aquarium octopus. It's probably one of my favorite stories, but proved its sort of skill because staff began noticing that fish from a tank nearby, the octopus tank seemed to keep going missing overnight. So then they watched the CCTV and the octopus was actually lifting the lid on its own tank slithering over to the fish claiming its prize then crawling back and covering itself which is just unbelievable it's sort of it's showing problem solving skills able to manipulate its own environment and you've probably seen on like um, planet earth and things like that the octopus actually can manipulate half coconut shells and use them and it's kind of this idea of we kind of associate animals using tools as sort of your higher primates and your humans but this is an octopus using something for a purpose it's just it's crazy it's probably the book that got me so fascinated with cephalopods they're definitely one of my absolute favorite groups because it kind of by looking at this group that looks so far from removed from humans and humanity it kind of made me take a deeper look at myself um my third book is kind of a similar one kind of a similar pop science book that focuses in on one particular group um, it's called Sting in the Tail, and it's by Dave Goulson. Um, it's from 2013, and uh, Dave Goulson's an entomologist and ecologist, so he studies um, particularly bumblebees, and that's what this book is about. So it's all about bumblebees. In a similar way, it kind of talks about his own experiences researching bumblebees. So it talks about you know what experiments were done to find out different things about bumblebees ecology and biology and just like Mm -hmm. little anecdotes in that way but it's set within this bigger narrative he purchases this farm in france and he ends up turning it into basically a a bumblebee uh research site so because it's a farm he can manage the fields in different ways and so that bumblebees can come back but he can also like do experiments and monitor things in different ways so it's like becomes this experimental research site there's also another story in there of um he's one of the folks who has been instrumental in the this project to reintroduce the short-haired bumblebee back into the uk that sounds and, adorable the short-haired yeah. bumblebee just incites cuteness you just think of something adorable and fluffy and you just think oh, everyone loves the bumblebee so i'm liking the sound of this book already <laughs> yeah it's, it's a really good one and the story of the reintroduction is also it's just this fascinating story because it's uh, the short-haired bumblebee went extinct in the UK, and so in the early days of the project, they wanted to get bumble. They wanted to reintroduce it, uh, but from New Zealand, of all Whoa, places. And you think that's far. that is very far, <laughs> and that's because the bumblebees in New Zealand, the the short-haired bumblebees, are descended from ones that were brought from the UK to New Zealand, and so they wanted like, okay, let's get 
them back over here because they're gone over here. Problems ensue. Yeah. Um, so it's it's like a, a fascinating story of all these different. Um, yeah, you get these little science anecdotes. You get this big story of this big, you know, this project to reintroduce this now extinct. It sounds um, like it would become a film, like based on a true story. Like it's when they, you know, when Disney yeah. have those sort of like inspirational films of get, returning the bees to to the UK. Oh, I'm yeah. just imagining a plane full of bees. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. How did they do it? Very They'll cute. have to be to find out. And um, <laughs> he, he also is the uh he founded the bumblebee conservation trust and the the story of getting this trust started up is told in this book as well and and so it's it's got this little personal bit as well about what goes into trying to start up this conservation movement basically um so it's it's a lovely book it's another like really good book um bit of an emotional roller coaster yeah an excellent it's a really excellent like pop science kind of book he's now written like a sequel to sting in the tail called a buzz in the meadow which is also excellent and it kind of picks up uh, a lot of those the big stories about this farm in france and um the reintroduction project and then it kind of follows up that so it, it kind of brings you up to date on you know since a sting in the tail what else have we learned about bees and bumblebees Mm-hmm. So if you like Sting in the Tail, you can then pick up Buzz in the Meadow, also by Dave Coulson, and read that one. Nice. I like it. It's kind of leading you down the little path. I think definitely finding out more about every animal could and little bumblebees is just, it's just going to be helpful. But obviously, we've just been sort of chatting about books kind of for adult audiences. Um, I think it couldn't be more important, though, to talk about kind of reading for younger audiences and how important it can be to educate and enthuse and inspire. So, yeah, so we've got some nice ideas. One of my favorite, probably my favorite ones that's kind of come out recently, came out in 2018. It's called How to Help a Hedgehog and Protect a Polar Bear. And I really like the alliteration in the title for the start, but it's by um, Jess French, who is a zoologist um, and an entomologist. And you might be familiar with her because she sometimes does some shows on the CBV channel all about kind of insects and mini bees. Um, but yeah, she's really, really fantastic. She works as a vet, so she's really well experienced within the natural world. And anyway, she's written this book and it is beautifully illustrated has a huge kind of visual impact but it basically goes through different endangered animals from beetles butterflies puffins polar bears um, animals and habitats describing them all over the world and kind of the ones that need our protection so through it they can learn about 13 different habitats and the simple everyday ways to protect them so it has kind of activities like picking up litter or planting wildflowers lots it's so so varied and so expensive and I think it's just so, so brilliant. Like I say, I advertise it for kids, but I love it. I've read it a few times and I think it is just absolutely beautiful um, and definitely one that should be on your shelf, your go-to for reading to the little one. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I've got a few um, ideas. There's um, there's the classic The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. Oh, yeah. Which is oh, about, my goodness. you know, the the loss of the truffula trees to due to greed all chopped down to make assorted goods and then all the animals have to leave because their habitat's all messed up um so that's a classic of course there's the lorax oh some other ones that are less well known over on this side they're kind of more they're from north america so they're more well known over there there's the the great kapok tree which is a great picture book by lynn cherry 
and the great kapok tree follows a a logger so someone who is coming in to chop down trees but he gets tired and takes a nap underneath a kapok tree and all the animals and things that live up in the kapok tree come down and make their case to him while he sleeps of why they need this tree so it's just this it's similar thing where it's got these beautiful beautiful detailed illustrations it's got a really lovely story to it and you meet this this whole huge cast of creatures that live and depend on this kapok tree so that's a really great one and the last one i have is it's almost more like an illustrated poem it's called the giving tree by shell silverstein oh yeah and it's a beautiful it's a beautiful book it's very simply illustrated but it has this beautiful story of this boy he's friends essentially with this tree and whenever he needs something the tree is there to to provide for him to help him out and so the tree gives and gives and gives to this little boy and it's it's a beautiful story with this slightly sad i don't Uh know melancholy (laughs) ending it's not a sad ending it's more of a melancholy ending but Mm -hmm. it's i really love it and i used to read this book events that we would do with families and it can lend itself to some really deep discussion about how we relate to the natural world what the natural world does for us what do we do for the natural world because it is it's this really simple story and it if you take the time to then talk through how do you feel about this story then it it leads into much deeper discussions so mm-hmm. it's a really excellent one good thought-provoking one which is great like you said getting the discussions going yeah but yes hopefully you've enjoyed listening to our kind of selection of some of our favorite natural history books both for adults and children um i i had lots of fun kind of looking through them kind of reminiscing about reading them as well um but yes thank you so much for listening big news we are now on twitter Ta-da! Please, please 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 connect with us on there our handle is kn underscore podcast so please please, please that's kn underscore podcast and uh, you can message us follow us and we'll be posting what kind of interesting news stories or things in nature that we quite enjoy or even just sharing our episodes as well if you have been scrambling to try and take notes on the books that we've mentioned don't worry about it because of course all of these details will be in the show notes uh, which can be found at our website at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com and as always we'd love to hear from you and you can send us an email at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com so multiple ways to get in touch with us but thanks so much for listening and we will catch you next time Mm -hmm.